Thank you. Let me invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And certainly thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning and counted a great uh, privilege. And so thank you, Mark, for the invitation. I love the theme for the day, uh, local church global impact. And I think it uh, is really very timely and important. Uh, it is, I think, touching on one of the key issues, I believe, confronting our churches related to missions, and that is what is our role in it, the central role, I believe, that God has given to the local church, and, and uh, a lot of uh, talk about missions, focus on missions, actually uh, has tilted away from that, so I think it's a great thing to focus on. Uh, I think in some ways our thinking about ministry, even in, in contemporary evangelicalism, and I say contemporary, but it, it really has a sort of a long train leading up to it, uh, if I could say it this way, is weakened and affected, perhaps plagued by, uh, personal pietism and ministerial entrepreneurialism. Those two things, I think, have affected us in bad ways. The, the personal pietism side, and not personal piety, personal pietism, uh, which attributes really uh, a kind of individualistic relationship to God that, that, that privatizes a person's work and service for God away from the local church, and in some senses, sometimes above the local church. That whatever God's told me to do, I'm to go do, and everybody else needs to get on board with it. And, and everyone else, particularly the local church, is seen as being the servant of what some person perceives to be an individual and subjective uh, revelation from God of some sorts. The other side of it is uh, what I call the ministerial entrepreneurialism, and that is, uh, and that's probably somewhat rooted in our American culture, uh, that if, if anyone can come up with a creative idea that they can find funding for, then it's God's will. You know, so if you can convince enough people to, to back you, then go for it. And, and the outworking of that at times is that our definition of mission is not, missions is not coming from the scriptures, it's coming from people's subjective ideas or by whatever we can make in the marketplace of ministry. We can get enough people to back us, then let's go for it. And, and there's a, a, sometimes a bias against challenging somebody who says, God wants me to do X. Because who are you to tell them that God doesn't want them to do that? Right? I, I think, actually, this gives us warrant to say, I don't think God wants you to do that. But just the very uncomfortableness of that conversation has, I think, often led churches to not be the leaders but to be the followers. Whatever people say they think God wants them to do or whatever anybody can, can gather a sufficient kind of following for, often pastors are left in an uncomfortable position because to say anything against it 
might actually blow back on them in their local churches. You do that for decades, and you end up with an accumulated kind of, of conglomeration, or maybe to shift the imagery, you have a ship that is just covered with barnacles and is not now moving through the water well for the purpose it was intended. And I think at times we have to be willing to, to, to step back from that because the privatization of the Great Commission, I think, is both unbiblical and impractical. The Great Commission is not given to individuals as individuals. It's given to the disciples of Jesus Christ, which we see as Acts unfolds, form into local churches, but we should recognize that even in Matthew 28, right? Because it's, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I won't ask this rhetorical question, but my guess is most of us would consider baptism the ordinance of the church, not the right of individuals as individuals. And then it says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And when we move into the book of Acts, we immediately see that teaching happening in the local church, right? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And, and when you come to a passage like Ephesians 4, where we see the risen Christ giving gifts to the body, he centers the teaching ministry in the local assembly by gifting churches with pastor-teachers. And yet at times, we can talk about the Great Commission as if it's just something we all go do on our own. And we sometimes talk about it in ways that don't, don't embrace the fullness of what Jesus said there. We reduce it to merely, and we, I don't, anyway, don't, don't stop with me just saying this, right? Reduce it merely to evangelism. But if the Great Commission means anything, it never stops at evangelism because we're to baptize them and teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. So the Great Commission is not fulfilled by just evangelism. It cannot be fulfilled apart from it, but it is not fulfilled by it. And so I think we have to, at times, uh, step back from these things and, and wrestle through them. If I could, if, if I could put it in sort of a uh, a formal way of what I am attempting to drive at this morning is this, is that weak ecclesiology inevitably produces flawed missiology. Weak ecclesiology inevitably produces flawed missiology. Or if you want it in less cumbersome terms, if we don't understand the church well, we won't develop a missionary understanding properly. We have to get the church and the importance of the church and the nature of the church and, and what God says about the church if we're actually going to go out to do the mission of Jesus Christ because Jesus said he will build his church. And we're supposed to be engaged in doing that. So what I want us to do this morning, Lord willing, we'll, we'll accomplish all that I'm going to try to. I'm beginning to doubt that. But uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, I think, that, that is very helpful for us in that it will it help us, I think, at least in three ways. One, it'll remind us that it's the master who calls the shots, not the ministers. It, it will also warn us about letting human wisdom shove aside or supersede biblical truth. 
And it will also, I think, reinforce the true focus of Great Commission ministries. So I'd like us to look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 5. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, I assume you're familiar somewhat with this passage, and so we're going to really, uh, in, in a way, the plan is to work through it uh, and, and see what is said in this passage that I think applies to uh, the kind of Corinthian mindset that I think dominates our day, and then uh, think through some implications of that, and then uh, a couple applications uh, toward it. So that's the plan, and, and I hope that you don't mind if I talk very fast, but I'm going to try to work my way through here. I resonated with what uh, Dr. MacArthur said about having two hours of material trying to fit in, so, so I'm, I'm going to fasten up and let it rip right now, all right? So we're going to work through it. The sort of big idea that I would suggest if we were to work through this a little more painstakingly is that Paul is correcting the Corinthian carnality in their view of God's servants, God's work, and God's church. That he is zeroing in on the fact that they have a fleshly view of those things, and that's why the church at Corinth is divided. That's why there's conflict there, and, and they're, they're breaking up into factions of their own making in that regard. In verses 5 through 9, he confronts their fleshly or carnal ideas about the servants of God. And, and, and I, I'm just going to walk through it. Verse 5 uh, confronts the issue that they are focusing on servants instead of the master, right? Notice he doesn't say, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? He's saying, what? What is Apollos? What, what is Paul? He's trying to focus on the nature of what they are, and they are servants, right? They're just simply servants that God used to bring these people to faith according to the opportunity given them by the Lord. So he immediately is, is positioning uh, Paul and Apollos below the Lord. It's the Lord's work. He's the master. They're merely servants through whom the Lord worked. 
And I think that's important for us to recognize because we live in a day, and perhaps since it happened in Corinth, uh, it's, in, it's endemic to sinful humanity that we love to elevate servants above the master for our own reasons, right? I don't think there was actually any conflict between Paul and Apollos. There were people who wanted to use their names to advance their own agendas. And, and we have a tendency to do that, and that's an evidence of fleshliness. And sometimes we do the same thing when we essentially footnote everything we believe by some impressive person. All right, so why do you believe that? Well, so-and-so, rather than text of Scripture. And I believe at times with the cultivation of our missiology, uh, those of us who are pastors have surrendered the authority of Scripture by a somewhat misplaced humility, right? There's no doubt, there's no doubt that I, you know, I can say I spent the night at a Holiday Inn Express compared to the person who's been on the mission field or the person who's pursued a PhD in missiology. So I ought to be very humble about myself when I enter that conversation. But at no point does any amount of time on a mission field or any amount of degree give anybody more authority than the Word of God. It is always the Word of God which must dictate to us our understanding of missions and how we go about doing missions. At no point can we elevate a servant above the master. And Jesus took the time at the end of each gospel and at the beginning of Acts to say, here's what I want you to do. And work through the early church all throughout the book of Acts to show us them doing it. And no one can come along now and tell us they have a better idea. That if the people in the Bible really understood contextualization, then they probably would have been doing it the way we're doing it. Right? What that effectively is doing is putting servants above the master. And, it, and, it's, and it's fleshly. It's carnal. It's like the Corinthians. And we need to realize that that's not uh, an, uh, an effective or biblical strategy. And what it does is the same thing that was happening there, and that is it was confusing the fact that verses 6 and 7 make it clear that it is carnal thinking to think that the servants are the source of the success, right? Paul says, I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. We ought to rejoice in whatever God does through human instruments, but not to the degree that we begin to think the human instrument is the source of the success. It's God. And the minute we begin to attribute the success to the human instrument is the minute we introduce a trajectory shift that will always lead to problems because we're missing the pattern here that it's actually God who caused the growth at Corinth. It's God who causes the growth wherever genuine gospel growth is happening. And so we need to recognize that. Then verses 8 and 9, he focuses on the fleshly thought of forgetting that servants are under God's command. Right? It's, 
It's actually the Lord who gives these assignments because it is the Lord's work. They're just doing it, right? Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. That is, we're unified. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That is, we are God's fellow workers. We're under his accountability, and, and therefore, they were simply doing what God had commissioned them to do. They were, in fact, following the pattern of Jesus Christ. John 17, Jesus prays and says to the Father, I have glorified you on the, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And the disciples of Jesus Christ are supposed to follow Christ in that by simply saying, our ambition is to glorify you by doing the work you gave us to do. And we go to the Word to find out the work that he's given us to do. So, so they had fleshly thoughts about human servants. Verses 10 to 15, I think, turn our attention to the fact that they had fleshly or carnal thoughts about ministry itself. Paul turns the attention to the work that's happening at Corinth now and, and talks about his work being rooted in the grace of God given to him and the wisdom as a wise master builder. And don't miss the significance of that word wise there because what's been the conflict in chapters 1 through 4? Right In chapter 1, they wanted a different kind of wisdom. They wanted something that would be attractive to the culture around them. And Paul says, no, that's not the path to go. In fact, he then takes chapter 2 and says, we didn't do it in man's wisdom, but that's not to say that we didn't have a wisdom. We actually have a wisdom that was from above. And so now when Paul says he was a wise master builder, he's echoing back to those earlier chapters and saying, listen, I did it God's way according to the wisdom of God revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Do not think that if you're building on it now, you get to freewheel it and do whatever you think will cause things to build. I built with wisdom that's found in Christ because there's no other foundation that can be laid than him. You're now building on it. You need to build in a way that's consistent with that foundation. We don't get to make it up as we go. We don't get to freewheel it. We must build consistently with the foundation, and that's his point, really, in verses 11 and 12. If we change the message to accommodate human wisdom and not confront human pride, then we are actually building in a fleshly and human wisdom that isn't. If we, if we adopt methodology that's more attractive to unbelievers because we think that'll give us some kind of persuasive advantage, then we're actually building their confidence in us instead of the demonstration of the power in the Spirit. If we actually uh, operate by the wisdom of the world thinking that that will make us more effective, we forget that the reason unbelievers don't accept our message is because the natural man cannot receive the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him. It, it, is, it really is ridiculous to abandon the only thing that God can use to open the eyes of an unbeliever to adopt something that we think will work better than what God says, right? We, we think the problem is, is somehow in our message or our methods instead of in the fact of human depravity. I mean, we, we adopt 
silly theological statements like anybody can be one to Christ if you find the right key to their heart. And if you happen to realize there's only one key, well, then you've got a decent chance, right? But if you think there's some other key than preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, then you've abandoned what Jesus commissioned us to do. And so, so Paul's confronting that kind of thinking about them building the work according to their ideas versus the gospel that had laid the foundation and actually was to build the superstructure. And Paul makes clear that, that you can choose one of two ways. You can build with permanent things or you can build with passing things, right? He talks about gold, silver, precious stones. And I've always thought these last three would be a great Christian rock band, wood, hay, and straw. But that's why I don't, I'm not a marketer for Christian rock bands, apparently, all right? But you could take gold, silver, precious stones, or you can build with wood, hay, and straw. And, and the point isn't really primarily about the relative value of those things as much as it is how well they will pass the fire test. And the implication here, I think, for us in ministry, whether that's on, at home or on a foreign context, is that it's possible to build your ministry in a way that will not have eternal value. It might have apparent success. You might, you might be viewed as a successful servant of Christ and arrive at the Bema and have it be wood, hay, and straw. And I think we should regularly remind ourselves that in our, our day, we would be more likely to invite Jonah to be a major conference speaker than Isaiah because Jonah had a great revival and Isaiah was commissioned to preach to people who didn't have ears to hear and eyes to see, but he was faithful. We have a tendency at times to, to want to see things work but not recognize that not everything is, is available for us as options to seek to accomplish the goal. God doesn't want to just be glorified by the outcome. He wants to be glorified by us obeying him in the pursuit of that outcome. And so Paul reminds them of it. Then verses 16 and 17, they obviously have fleshly ideas about the church itself, which in this case is described as the temple of God. And I know we're familiar with that imagery, but sometimes people mesh those together and think that this is referring to their bodies. That is used in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 2, it's actually a statement about the congregation of God's people at Corinth. Uh, the, the plural is used here, do you not know? It's not like in English, I could look down in the front row and say, do you not know this? Or I could look to this whole section and say, do you not know this? This is actually, do you not know this? He's writing to the church at Corinth and saying, you are God's temple at Corinth. He dwells among you, right? You are you are the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. That's what verse 16 is saying. Ephesians 2 reinforces. And so what they have to recognize, and the implication of that is, is that these ministry ideas, this fleshly view of God's servants, they actually are reflecting a fleshly view of God's church. 
as if they're in control and their ideas can dominate it. And it's actually wreaking havoc at Corinth. That's why verse 17 gives one of the most profound warnings we could think of. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. All right, so there's our our path through the passage, trying to give an overview of what it says. Let me now try and draw out some implications of that. The first I would suggest to you is that God's word must have active, active functional control over our missiology, including our view of both the work and the workers. As I said earlier, Jesus calls the shots. I mean, look at verse 5. It says, as the Lord gave opportunity or assignment to each one. That is, it was the Lord who was uh, in charge of this work. And as I said, he commissioned us very clearly about what we're supposed to do. And, and uh, we, we do this, well, I shouldn't say, if I, in this crowd, I would assume you do this. If, if I were to start asking you, so what is the church and how should the church function and how should leadership in the church function and how should all these things, I hope your first answer would be, would be to go to texts of scripture to show me those things. But I think at times, if I actually began to question us sometimes on missions, we would start to quote missions books. We would start to talk about it as if, well, I'm not really sure, you gotta sort of figure it out. And, and inherently, in that kind of a dichotomy is the fact that we think we're actually doing something different there than we're doing here, right? That, that, that we're involved in something that they're doing that's something different. But if the mission of Jesus Christ is to make disciples, baptizing them, that is they'd be identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think would be therefore assembling, like Acts 2.41, as many as received his word, were baptized, and that day they were added to them, Right, that it would go faith, baptism, into an assembly of people who are then taught to follow Jesus Christ. If that's what we're supposed to do here, where on the planet are we not supposed to do that? Where's the, the, the church-free zone? Right, all, all we are is the product of somebody else having done this, right? I mean, it started in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest parts of the earth. Oh, that's us. So we are the product of people having done it right, yet at times we turn to the mission field and think they need to do something different. And that's not something that we derive from the Scriptures. That's something we're imposing on the task, I would suggest to you. And we need to get back to being thoroughly biblical in answering the questions, the basic questions. You know, why do we do it? What are we supposed to do? How is it supposed to be done? Where is it supposed to be done? All right, those, those questions we should answer from text of Scripture and then get out into application questions. But we have to start with the principles and then move to applications, not jump past all the principles to the applications. 
Because if we do that, we'll, we'll have trajectory problems. I would suggest to you, from this text of Scripture, it reinforces the fact that the local church is the center of Christ's commission. I already have said the Great Commission implies this, Acts shows us this. I think this passage confirms it. Look again, if you would, in verse, uh, verse 6. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. Now, I would suggest to you that, that sometimes, if not most often, this passage is taken about evangelism, but that's not actually what he's talking about. When he says, I planted, he's saying, I planted the church. Right? Because if he was saying, I just planted the seeds of the gospel, and then Apollos came along and watered it, and then God gave the increase, Paul would effectively be saying that he actually didn't win anybody to Christ. He just planted the seed. But we know that's not the case, because look what he says in, in verse 5. We're servants through whom you believed. And in chapter 4, Paul says to these same people, you may have many teachers, but you have one father through the gospel. Paul actually is talking about the fact that when he came to Corinth, his goal wasn't just to win people to Christ. It was actually to establish the church of God in Corinth. In fact, that's reinforced in verse 9 and 10. Look at what Paul does at the end of verse 9. He says, you are God's field, God's building. Now stop for there and think of it. He's using metaphors, the first of which is from agriculture, the second from architecture. And in the agricultural metaphor, you are God's field, he uses these statements. I planted Apollos water, God was giving the increase. He says, you are God's field, and then he goes, you are God's building, and look what verse 10 does. It, it turns and builds off that metaphor, and he says, I, like a wise master builder, laid a foundation, and another is building on it. So think about it this way. Field, building, planted, foundation layer, waterer, another building on it. He's talking about a mission at Corinth that was vitally, intricately tied to the local assembly there, that he came and planted the church, and now others are building on it, because I would argue that in Paul's conception, the very mission that Jesus entrusted to us cannot be fulfilled without that kind of central focus. In Romans 15, he talks about having fulfilled the preaching of the gospel from Jerusalem around to Illyricum. Okay, and two years ago I mentioned that, and it's, it's the fact that he said he had completed the task there. And he says he was going somewhere else so that he could preach where Christ was not named so that he wouldn't build on another man's foundation. That's the kind of foundation he's talking about here. So I would suggest to you that if we really understand what's going on in the book of Acts and in New Testament passages like this, we would know that mission springs from the local church, Acts 13. It starts local churches, Acts 14, 21 to 23, and it reports back to the local church, the end of Acts 14. That you really can't be obediently following, I think, the mission of Jesus if you're somehow outside of that and doing something apart from it. I mean, I don't want to 
take too much time playing word games here, right? But, but here's what I would suggest to you is what we tend to do is we talk church and parachurch. And when we say parachurch, we certainly that church means local church, right? Because we're not saying alongside of the universal church. I mean, that, that's not a good place you want to be is alongside of the universal church. You certainly want to be in that. So it's talking about alongside of the local church. But I would suggest to you that we probably would have been better to pick a prefix like hoopo church, under, serving the church. Because practically in our day, parachurch is often hyperchurch, above, or, and, and stick with me for a second, anti-church, in place of, in the stead of. And, and those are not acceptable options in terms of the mission of Jesus Christ, that actually everything that's going on must in some way uh, flow into what Jesus is doing in the church, the local church, a visible expression in a time and place of his people congregating to worship him and obey him and carry out his mission. And, and I think we can't do that, uh, can't get away from that, but we've been bombarded on this for over a century. I mean, at the end of the 1800s, there was a, a strong push toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the student volunteer movement. But by 1910, it, it really sort of hit its, its uh, in a sense, its apex, which I think at the same time began to launch it toward its, its low point. Because what happened in 1910 was there was an expansion of the mission. It was, let's fulfill the Great Commission in our generation. And then all of a sudden it became this generation of students is recognizing their larger responsibility in the world. And they talked about the larger mission of the church. From 1910 to the mid-20th centuries, the student volunteer movement morphed into the World Council of Churches and did it under the language of a larger mission. Mid-20th century, there was good pushback some pushback by evangelicals. 1968, there was a conquerors on world evangelism that actually sort of said, no, the mission of the church is preaching the gospel, establishing churches. That's 68. But six years later at Luzon, under the influence of John Stott, all of a sudden there was a new, t a new label in, holistic mission, that was just simply a revised version of larger mission. And, and so then from 1974 up until this point, there has been a significant inroads into our understanding of missions, which sees it as being significantly larger than the goal to, to take the gospel to people who need it, bring them into relationship with Christ through the gospel, into the fellowship of local assemblies identified with their public profession of faith and submission to the teaching of God. 100 years after 1910 was big celebratory conferences, 2010 Cape Town. Listen to what they said about missions. The work of the gospel then in all its dimensions, including evangelism, discipling, peacemaking, social engagement, ethical transformation, bearing witness to the truth, caring for creation, overcoming evil powers, suffering and enduring under persecution, etc., is pointless and fruitless without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's in a context of decrying any kind of distinction between evangelism and all of these other things. That you can't really say one is mission or one is not. You actually have to embrace them all. And I would suggest to you that in many ways, that's a dominant kind of view. In fact, for me to say what I'm saying right now could be perceived as, as downright old-fashioned and all I care about are the souls of people and who cares what happens to their body, which is an absolute and I think often slanderous caricature against missionaries who believe that the primary focus is to preach the gospel and establish churches because they don't not care for people. But they know what Jesus commissioned us to do. And they want to be obedient to Jesus and allow churches then to be healthy. And a part of the difference, I mean, John actually mentioned this. I, I leaned over <laughs> and said he's stealing my, my message right now. You know, at the end of the 1800s, the student volunteer movement was to fulfill the Great Commission this generation. One of the most significant student missions movements of our day gathers people together into arenas and, and challenges them and, and gets 20-some thousand Christian young people there. And you know what their mantra was? We need to wipe out human trafficking in this generation as a missions conference. Do you see the radical difference between those two? Right, and, and I could read you quote after quote of people justifying this kind of broad and expanded view of the mission of Jesus Christ, which effectively doesn't become parachurch, it becomes anti-church. Because you can go and, and do Effectively, missions in our day often is to leave your home to go somewhere to do something for Jesus, not to go out to fulfill the Great Commission. There's all kinds of other things that have become missionary work, and it's not consistent. So here are the, uh, two, if I get you to think about a couple of threats that I, I would say concern, I'm probably just going to have to sort of mention them so I can make a couple applications. I think we really need to be wary, both at home and in the field, by defining missions by whatever self-proclaimed missionaries want to do or are already doing. So let me self-proclaim, because what I'm saying is I, I see a missionary as fulfilling the Great Commission. And you may not, might not agree with me, but just try and stick with the way I'm thinking for a moment. I know it might be difficult, all right? But, but if someone says, for instance, that they're going to be a missionary of creation care, right? They're getting to define what a missionary is simply by the fact that they left their home to go somewhere else and they're doing it for Jesus. So if they're going to teach Kenyan farmers how to be more productive and they're a missionary, they're defined as a missionary merely because they left their home to go somewhere else and people are supporting them to do it. But is that really what a missionary is? I mean, can we, can we defend that from the scriptures? I think we have to be careful not to let missions be defined by the people who want to do something or are already doing it. Missions needs to be defined by the scriptures. 
right? That's, that's our authority. And I would suggest to you as well that when we're developing mission strategies, that if they are not aimed at starting new churches, supporting the work of church planting, or strengthening new and, and uh, growing churches, then we've got a fundamental breakdown, right? It'd be like if, if I said to you, hey, my goal this year is to lose 30 pounds as you watch me pounding candy bars. You'd go, there's something not connecting between your strategy and your goal, right? And if we say our goal is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, become disciples by calling on his name, trusting in his person and work, identifying with him through baptism, and then submitting to the teaching of God's word within the assembly, if that's our goal, and then we're doing things that don't even point in that direction, shouldn't that cause us to question? How can you driving south get north? Right? We need to do that. So, my pastor brothers who are here, let me urge you to accept the responsibility to lead the Great Commission work of your church just as you would any other ministry in the church. Would you allow, uh, would you allow in your church the pastors and the teaching of God's Word to not be setting the pace and direction of what you're doing? If you wouldn't allow that for anything happening at home, why would you allow it for things happening away from home? It should be the outgrowth of your theology, your biblical commitments about what the church is and is to be doing. So let me urge you to graciously but courageously and faithfully pursue a thoroughly biblical understanding of the work, teach that to your congregations, and begin to act consistently with it. That's all we're supposed to do, right? We're not talking about craziness. We're talking about faithfulness. So let me urge you on that. If you're here as a missionary Brother, can I plead with you to recognize the centrality of the local church to everything that is supposed to be happening in missions? Your commission is under the commission of the local church, never above it, never really actually alongside of it. It is always the outworking of what the church is supposed to be and do. You were sent out to do the church's work, not that you chose to go and then just sort of get the church to help you, right? Jesus commissioned the disciples, and it's the church caring. Just like in Acts 13, God directed the church at Antioch to send out. So you're out as servants of your local church, carrying out its purposes in the world. So, so embrace that. Don't kick against that. Submit and yield to the church as it seeks to carry out its mission. And those of you who may be here in missionary leadership, please make sure that the goal is always crystal clear. Start churches, support church planting, strengthen young churches by building leaders and preparing them. Uh, please make sure that field strategies and work genuinely pursue this goal. Can you imagine if you were to leave your home for 
three months because it was going to be totally, you know, you found uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines to come in and, you know, redo your fixer-upper, right? And, and you laughed, and you had left. It wasn't Chip and Joanna, so you left them with very clear instructions about what you want. Here, do, you know, this wall becomes a half wall. This thing gets moved there. These colors in the living room, the bedrooms, you, you, you painstakingly painted it out, and you come back, and the, the bedroom that you thought was going to be a study is now a different bedroom. And the wall that you thought was going to be sort of a lightish blue is uh, yellow. And you walk through the house, and it's all being done differently than you want. And you went to the person, you said, why did you do that? And they said, I thought you would like this better. You might be inclined to say, but I wrote it all down and told you exactly what I wanted you to do. It wasn't up to you to decide what I would like better. Friend, I think there's going to be a lot of that at the day of judgment. So why were you doing that? Well, I thought you'd really like that. We were convinced that this would be a better way to get it done. We, we thought this would be really good. And, and obviously Jesus is much more gracious than I am right? But, but wouldn't he be in his right to say, like, did you read? Because he said that all throughout the Gospels, right? Have you not read? Have you not read? Do you want to be at the judgment seat of Christ and hear, have you not read? So brothers, sisters, take up and read. Let's do what Jesus wants us to do. And trust him that he knows what he's doing. And he knows what he wants. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word, which is a light and a lamp. Thank you for not leaving us to our own imaginations and devices, because what a mess we would make of things. Thank you for giving us your word, your spirit, putting us together into churches so that we can think and interact and wrestle through the ramifications of your truth. Lord, make this day that kind of day that we would be able to think about deeply what you want us to do to fulfill the work you've entrusted to us. We thank you for that privilege and ask your blessing on it now. In Jesus' name, amen.